0: It can just make people think, I can't bear to deal with this. It's just too emotionally upsetting for me. I'm going to bury my head in the sand. And that is the worst thing that you can do.
1: Welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster, from the Financial Times with me, Lucy Fisher. You heard there the FT's consumer editor, Claire Barrett, talking about the one subject in town this week, inflation and interest rates. We'll examine whether high inflation is wrecking Rishi Sunak's hopes of re-election. Plus, is it fair that the Bank of England is under fire? And what levers does the government actually have to tame inflation? Joining me in the studio today are FT columnist Stephen Bush. Hi, Stephen. Hiya. And political editor George Parker. Hi, George. Hi, Lucy. So, uh, to kick us off this week, Stephen, what stopped you in your tracks?
2: Yeah, outside of the huge story of the economy, I think for me, my favorite moment was poring over the division lists after the vote on Boris Johnson's future in the Privileges Committee. Obviously, it's expected all of the opposition parties voted uh, to hold it up. But the more interesting thing were the 100 or so Conservative MPs and what that tells you about the, you know, the strength of the various factions within the Conservative Party it's always useful when a party is forced to give us a nice new fresh mental map of its divisions. And it was kind of fascinating watching these anti-Boris groups, so retiring MPs with nothing to lose. There are some Conservative MPs who are basically Conservative MPs because they literally own most of the land, you know, kind of the real bedrock of the party. And one of the significant moments in his downfall was those MPs in particular coming out and going, no, no, you've got to go. I thought it was just a fascinating moment to see who decided, actually, no, I am going to, I'm going to come out. Partly, it was, of course, just the left of the party, but partly, of course, it was people who have had a lot to fear for the Lib Dems in their own patch. And it was kind of interesting to look through and go, oh, right, so thinking about the next leadership election, you know, who's coming back, who has a fighting chance of making the ballot of members. It was just a, yeah, a a fun, fun afternoon with the division lists.
3: Well, I was going to say, it was interesting that there was a division, wasn't there, because a lot of people said that it was going to be nodded through. But in the end, the Labour Party... Conspire to force a vote. Now, I think Stephen is such a nerd that he understands how this happened. <laughs> what is the procedure by which you can force a vote, even if you don't necessarily
2: want to oppose something? Well, you just have to shout no for a loud and long enough period that the speaker at their discretion goes, OK, right, there's clear opposition. Now, the fun historical point here is that one of the reasons why you can force a division, even if you intend to vote with the motion, is that the origin of parliamentary divisions goes back to Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII's attempt to divest himself of his first wife. And they used divisions as a way of smoking out opponents, right? So they could visibly see who had voted against the king. So when they next were going to country, Thomas Cromwell could go around working out how to return people who would be pro his measures and pro Henry VIII's uh, measures. So one of the things I found slightly amusing about various conservatives sort of confidently saying, oh, we'll avoid a division. It's like, well, That's not in your gift. The opposition has always been able to, when it wants to embarrass the government of the day by forcing a vote, has always been able to go, no, 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 I think we'll have a division.
3: And that's basically what the Labour whips were doing. They were employing the same tactics as Thomas Cromwell to basically flush out people who were prepared to actually go on the record to support Boris Johnson. And in the end, there were seven of them, weren't there? Yeah. Who basically fell into Labour's trap advertising how thin the support was for Boris Johnson in Parliament. Of course, he has much broader support out in the country and in the press. But in Parliament, it was really striking how few people there were. I mean, just on that, my favourite moment of the week was really this great moment where Harriet Harman, who chaired the Privileges Committee inquiry into Boris Johnson, was being attacked by Jacob Rees-Mogg, a big ultra Boris Johnson loyalist, for the idea she was biased because she'd previously spoken out against Boris Johnson. And she revealed that she'd actually mentioned this to the government in advance and the government, Boris Johnson's government, basically said, no, fine, go ahead and chair the inquiry. And that actually was a quite amusing moment for Jacob Riesmong to sit down and, uh, and suck it up, I'm afraid.
1: Yes. And for me, something a little bit different, I was really struck by a speech that David Lamy gave on Tuesday, setting out a vision for Labour's foreign policy if they win the next election. And it's interesting that they are trying to place economic diplomacy at the heart of uh, UK foreign policy, stealing a march on the government. But I thought there were some interesting uh, ideas there from Lamy, including uh, reviewing where Britain has its postings for diplomats. He talked about shifting some to countries like India that are crucial to Britain's prosperity and supply chains and also looking at convening a new business council which seems a bit of a, a byword uh, for Labour at the moment to advise on foreign policy and, and when you come to think about it maybe a little bit uh, of a trick miss that the government doesn't have more uh, economic input. It's
3: interesting that we went, when William Hague was foreign secretary he came up with exactly the same approach actually that we need to make all our diplomats basically salespeople for Britain so I'm just going back to a Haguean past I think.
1: Well, let's move on to the main theme of the week then, which is how much pain the Bank of England's latest rate rise will inflict. So we are very lucky this week. We've got two of the FT's top experts to talk us through this all. Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, who will talk to us about the pure economics and the FT's consumer editor, Claire Barrett, who will talk to us about our finances. So first to you, Chris. Hi. Hello. So, Chris, it's been a really busy week for you. On Thursday, we had that interest rate rise from 4.5% to 5%. Give us a bit of the general context of what's coming next. Lots of talk of interest rates reaching 6% by the end of this year. Lots of talk of recession now being all but inevitable.
4: Well, certainly the Bank of England didn't do anything at all on Thursday to damp speculation of further interest rate rises to come. So they could have put something in the statement. Officials could have quietly told us we're locked in a room three floors underground. and They can quietly say, well, this is what we really are trying to say here. Uh, None of that at all. So they're not saying it will go to six interest rates, but they're not trying to uh, say anything other than The data that we've seen since they last met in May has all been pretty terrible on inflation and on wages, and so they're going to take a big action now and wait and see. And if the data continues being bad, it will go up to those sorts of levels, could go further than that. No, that's been the experience of the last year or so, but if things start looking better over the summer or the early autumn, then it's not a done deal, it's not definitively going that far.
1: What about the Bank of England and Andrew Bailey as governor coming under increasing fire now for saying Bailey as recently as last year that inflation was looking to be transient, as recently as March saying that he was expecting a sharp fall in inflation, which uh, has in fact proven pretty sticky. Is it fair for the bank and and Bailey to come under criticism?
4: Yes, I think it's always fair for public officials who have very important jobs to face scrutiny. And I think Bailey sometimes has given the impression that he doesn't think it's fair. I I think the criticism has to be done properly. So you have to acknowledge that lots of things have happened which had nothing to do with the bank. Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, having an effect on food and energy prices. The bank couldn't stop that. And so part of the inflation is clearly out of the bank's control. But I think it is completely fair to say that the bank has been behind the curve, has always expected inflation not to be as bad as they thought. And over the past four months, every month, time in, time out, they have uh, got their forecasts of inflation wrong. And these aren't medium-term forecasts. These are what's happening in the shops right now, mm-hmm. which is where they have hundreds of people who are looking at this and they really should get that sort of stuff Right, um, so I think it's fair to be reasonably critical of the bank, and I think sometimes Andrew Bailey has shown a little bit of a thin skin, like in the press conference in May, where he started complaining that journalists were using the language of blame, which you know journalists always use the language of blame, so <laughs> we, we love it, we love it, and he it showed a little bit of touchiness when it was obvious people were going to say you need to defend your record. And I think the bank has a reasonable defence, but it just has to get out there and say things maybe a bit more clearly, maybe accept it's made mistakes, because often they don't like suggesting they make mistakes. And I think one of the really important things, the government in 1997 gave the Bank of England the task of controlling inflation on the grounds that public officials who don't have to face electorates would be more willing to be really straight with the public. Mm-hmm. And quite often you feel the Bank of England is actually sounding rather like politicians always trying to defend themselves, cover their backs, Like it wasn't our fault. It'd be much better if they said, look, these are the mistakes with hindsight we uh, now think we've made and this is what we're doing about it. And I think the bank would be wise to go a bit more in that direction.
1: And just finally, Chris, obviously Rishi Sunak at the beginning of the year set out as his first of the five priority pledges that he would halve inflation. I mean, was that completely irresponsible? Does he have any levers in his power to actually achieve that? And is it looking likely that it will halve?
4: He never really had. Well, he has some of levers. He could raise taxes a lot, so induce a slowdown, which he doesn't want to do. But I suppose what we thought in January when the pledge was made was that there was pretty much no chance of it being missed. And this is not just the Bank of England forecast suggesting that, but pretty much everyone's forecast. We all thought inflation would come down faster than it has done. So there was a lot of jokes of it's like someone at high tide predicting that the sea will move away and and then trying to claim credit for it when it happens. Now it's looking much more dicey. It's not definitively going to be missed by the end of the year, but it's looking much, much closer because to meet the target, and the Treasury has maybe stupidly in the budget defined the target really quite precisely. Uh, it means an inflation rate of 5.4% in the fourth quarter of this year, They've already used up 3.6 percentage points of that 5.4. So inflation has to halve in the second half of the year, the rate compared with the first half of the year. And that's looking a little bit tricky now.
1: Chris Charles, the FT's economics editor, thanks for joining us. We're joined now by Claire Barrett, who of course writes the weekly Serious Money column and presents the FT's Money Clinic podcast. Hi, Claire.
0: Thanks for having me. So um,
1: give us a bit of context. How many people are affected in terms of having to refix their mortgage or suffering the rate rises at the moment in the UK?
0: Well, between now and the end of the year, about 800,000 borrowers are going to roll off fixed rate deals, according to UK Finance, which is the banking trade body. And the year after, over a million more will add to their ranks. And this is a process that's speeding up. Mm-hmm. we're seeing more and more people come to the end of these fixed rate deals and of course this is where the pain of interest rate rises um, is very unfairly felt it's quite highly concentrated on people who are younger with bigger loans who of course bought as property prices spiralled higher I mean my goodness if you're a first-time buyer who bought two years ago when the stamp juicy holiday was on you've mm-hmm. had a baby since then You've got childcare costs to add to the mix. That's really, really going to stretch your budget. Then you've got older people who may have paid off more of their loans, so there's less to go. But then an awful lot of people who aren't going to be affected by this at all because they've paid off their mortgages. And that is the traditional rump of older voters that the Conservative Party are often accused of of pandering to. Rates could get to much, much higher levels and that wouldn't crimp their spending power, which Mm perhaps helps to explain why it's taking so long for the Bank of England's rate rises to be effective and the supersized rate rise that we've seen on Thursday.
1: And so the Labour Party like to talk about an average, what they call Tory mortgage penalty of £2,900 this year. Is that a fair way of looking at the
0: rise that many people are facing? I'm very anti averages being used for the simple reason that it panics people. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm in the job of trying to calm people down at the moment when it comes to their mortgages. Everyone's individual situation is different. A lot of these average jumps are based on what the best possible rate would have been a few years ago compared to the worst possible rate now, the standard variable rate that lenders will default you onto when your loan ends. And in fact, it's those kinds of figures that are often quoted in the letters that mortgage lenders send out, really to sort of shock people um, into action. But knowing the human psyche as I do, it can just make people think I can't bear to deal with this it's just too emotionally upsetting for me I'm going to bury my head in the sand and that is the worst thing that you can do when faced with these big shocks to your budget the message from everyone has been very clear People need to talk to their lenders if they think they are going to face financial difficulty. And the hard thing is, is that for so many of these people, they would never have been in any financial difficulty before in their lives ever at all. They would never have been behind on a bill. People are incredibly worried about the impact on their credit scores. If you phone up and just talk to your mortgage lender, your credit score is not going to be affected. But the solutions that they're then going to offer you, obviously, that's going to take some time to digest. and. If I'd been in the meetings that the Chancellor's been having in recent days with um, money experts and mortgage lenders taking the temperature of the market, I would say to him, please make sure that debt advice, free debt advice in this country is properly funded, because I think that the demand for it is going to be unprecedented and that debt advisors are going to need to work in tandem often with mortgage lenders just to help people understand properly what the options are available to them. Because for lots of people, these are going to be difficult, life-changing decisions, but scaring people with, with average numbers could be counterproductive. Well, some great advice there for uh, both mortgage
1: holders and the Chancellor. Now, we know that uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have ruled out direct help. Mm. But beyond, say, funding more debt advice, uh, what else could they do
0: to help people with mortgages? So... They're passing the bucks to the mortgage lenders who have agreed that they will offer forbearance to borrowers. That could come in many forms. And the lenders have said it will depend on your individual circumstances. They could let you go interest only for a period. They could extend the term of your loan or they could allow you to build up arrears on your mortgage. So with their agreement, you're allowed to pay a reduced rate, but those debts will be added on. And of course, that will affect your credit score. What I can foresee happening is different lenders offering different solutions to different customers. And I'm concerned that there isn't going to be as level a playing field or as transparent as a playing field as there needs to be. And that's been picked up by some of the comments that Shadow Chancellor um, has, has been making in the House of Commons. Now... At the moment, if your bank makes a decision that you're not happy with, you can go to the financial ombudsman once you've exhausted the bank's internal complaints process. But the financial ombudsman is overloaded with complaints at the moment. It could take six months, nine months for the time that your case is actually allocated to an investigator. And if we're talking about mortgages, potential house repossessions, let's not mince our words here, time is of the essence. You really need a quick decision and a quick process of appeal if you think that the lenders have not treated you fairly. And I think we need to have public confidence um, that that system is working. But we need to make sure that there's a fair process for how we treat borrowers. And the other big thing, Lucy, is don't forget renters. I've been banging Mm -hmm. on all of this week. You know, renters are really hurting too, as landlords put prices up. Now, one thing that the government does have within its gift is looking at the level of local housing allowance, which sets the level of help that those on benefits who are renting privately will receive towards their rent. Rents are shooting up, but that local housing allowance has been frozen since 2020. And there are millions more people who are renting in the private sector, won't qualify um, for these benefits, but nevertheless are really worrying what their landlord's going to do next and if there will be an exodus indeed of, of landlords from the sector. So the longer term solution to all of this has got to be more housing for affordable rent, not shared ownership, not these help-to-buy models that encourage people to build up unsustainable levels of debt, but either funding councils to build housing, housing associations, or creating the conditions for a professional rented sector, like we see in big European countries like Germany, to really thrive in the UK. We need to let go of this idea that you have to own your house. A sustainable model for renting would be much better. My
1: thanks there to Chris and to Claire. And for anyone worried about their mortgage, uh, Claire's next episode of her podcast FT Money Clinic has put together a really handy practical guide. So I'd recommend tuning into that. George, Stephen, thanks for for staying with me there. So... uh, George, beyond just the diciness, as Chris put it, of Rishi Sunak potentially breaking his uh, pledge to halve inflation, this is just a disaster for the Conservatives electorally, isn't it?
3: Yes, it is. And I think, first of all, important thing to say about this target that he set himself of halving inflation to 5.4%, as Chris said, this is only Rishi Sunak setting and marking his own homework. You know, I think it's important to say that the tests on which he will judge himself are not necessarily the tests upon which... The electorate will judge Rishi now. so getting inflation down to five point four percent might be quite a significant achievement given where, where we are now. But the voters won't necessarily be thankful if, as Claire was describing very eloquently, there they're coming off fixed term mortgages and suddenly being hit by increasing their monthly payments of two, three, four hundred pounds or whatever. And the problem is, it's a slow motion problem for the Tories—a mortgage bomb, as Sir Jake Berry, a Tory MP, described it, sort of detonating in election year—and. You know, it's very much not the economic backdrop that the Conservatives imagined they would, could be fighting the election on. As we go into the start of 2024 election year, it's possible, although not certain by any means, that we could be in a recession. Inflation rates and the cost of living is still a massive problem. Mortgage rates are still extremely high. And then if you chuck into all that, the Boris Johnson problem, as we were discussing earlier, the fact that public services aren't working very well. I was saying to one Labour MP today, you would have to be a pretty useless opposition not to be able to win from this position. This MP said, well, we'll give it a go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Stephen, let's look at that then. So Keir Starmer uh, went on this issue at PMQs. He said that the what he calls the Tory mortgage penalty is a direct result of the kamikaze budget of Liz Truss and Kwasi um last autumn. At the same time, Rishi Sunak's trying to say, look, uh, yes, inflation is stubbornly high in the UK, but it's also pretty high in the US and the Eurozone. What do you think voters are going to buy?
2: I think one of the reasons why the list trust era was so damaging politically was that essentially if, looking at the polls and also when you go around the country sort of bothering people about how they're going to vote, I think it's pretty clear that up until the quasi budget, people went, We have a problem of inflation, and we see that there are global factors. And essentially, Liz Truss's signal achievement was to make the Conservatives the owners of the UK's inflation problem. Now, some of that is fair, right? Brexit undoubtedly has heightened some of our inflationary problems. But broadly speaking, most of the pain households are feeling is not about anything the Conservatives have done. But I think when you look at the polls, when you talk to people, I was sitting in a focus group uh, yesterday, it's pretty clear that people buy the Labour line, then it's the Conservatives' fault. And I think one of the problems is because Rishnag's felt so constrained about his ability to take on his own right flank, he's never really... okay. he's done lots of coded things that we all pick up on as a sort of coded rebuke of the trust era. But if you think about the average person who doesn't follow politics that closely, there has never really been a big moment in which he's gone... That was the result of things in the past. I'm moving beyond that. And actually, I think one of the most powerful images in the next election will not be a post designed by any of the political parties, but it will be that shareable graphic, that I'm sure all of our listeners saw at some point during the, the trust administration, which is the, you know, kami quasi, he loves a good crash, which went round WhatsApp like wildfire. And I, I heard about that image more than anything else when I was um, knocking on doors in the local elections, testing the mood, and I suspect that will be the case right the way until the election, whenever it is.
1: Mm. Yeah. And George, I mean, is this in some ways a rod that the Conservatives have made for their own back in terms of the way they have primed public expectation for the government to step in? Firstly, in the pandemic with furlough, and fine, you might say that's a sort of unprecedented crisis, but then we had Ukraine, and then the very expensive energy Mm. support scheme for bills. Um, Is it any surprise now that not only the public, but many of their own backbenchers are demanding that the government step in to help mortgage holders? I think
3: that has become inevitable. I don't think we should criticise the government, of course, for stepping in with the furlough scheme or the energy support packages because they were essential. But you're right that you end up in a situation where Conservative MPs, including some on the right of the Conservative Party, who simultaneously are calling for tax cuts Mm. and massive state interventions to help mortgage holders. But in this case, you know, you can sense the frustration in in Number 10 and Number 11 Downing Street about this. You know, you'll speak to AIDS to say, look, we're not in a pandemic now. We can't always intervene. And the thing is, if they were to intervene to avert hardship for mortgage holders for lots of different reasons it would be a mad thing to do it would be unfair Mm -hmm. to the renters that claire was talking about earlier and people who don't own homes obviously massively regressive but above all else entirely counterproductive you've got the bank of england with its foot on the brake trying to slow the economy down for the idea that the government would then be chucking money at householders the equivalent to putting your foot on the accelerator it would just be absolute madness economically so they're not going to do it But that doesn't mean that opposition parties, including the Liberal Democrats, will be saying it's exactly the sort of thing they should be doing.
1: Mm -hmm. But I am interested, Stephen, with the Labour Party, Rachel Reeves this week brought forward her five-point mortgage relief help plan. But it's basically the same as what the Financial Conduct Authority is already telling uh, lenders that they have to do, offer mortgages to switch to interest-only terms or to lengthen the length of uh, mortgages to help people. So does Labour really have any good answers on how to tame inflation itself?
2: Oh, no. I mean, ultimately, the Labour Party's actual inflation strategy is Hopefully, we will have hit the the peak by the time of the next election, and then the Labour Party will be able to benefit from the from the pain working its way through the system. And in some ways, right, whatever one says about uh, the Bank of England shortcomings, and you know, Chris's points were all, all very well made. Is that broadly speaking, we see from both what the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats are saying, and the noises off from the backbenches, and the fact I think it is still likely that the Conservatives will find some pretext to cut taxes. Then, broadly speaking, the one bit of uh, of our economic armory that is actually willing to commit to doing the stuff to fix this problem is the central bank so we are seeing one of the arguments for central bank independence playing itself out
1: and george a recession what do we think is that likely i think
3: it's uh, i think it's possible um it's not a certainty by any means but you heard the bank of england governor andrew bailey saying it, it's not trying to force a recession but he'll do whatever it takes to control inflation the implication being that a recession if necessary and jeremy hunt the chancellor's acknowledged it might be necessary as well Now, this is, in a way, a sort of technical debate. People don't necessarily know whether the economy is growing by 0.1% or is contracting by 0.1% over two quarters. They know about it because they'll feel it in their, their weekly budgets and in their shopping bills and in their mortgage payments. But I think it's entirely possible. But it just feeds in, as Stephen was just saying there, into this idea that the Conservatives have crashed the economy. If the R word is out there in the media every week for several months Running into an election year just adds to the sense that something's gone terribly wrong.
1: More gloom ahead, quite possibly. Uh, well, let's end on a more cheerful note, shall we? Uh, Stephen, what have you been up to this week? Or what are you looking forward to this weekend?
2: So what have I been up to this week? It's probably actually won't surprise people considering what I said earlier, but I've been rereading, um, apologies to all our listeners in Scotland for the botch I'm about to do with the pronunciation here, the McCulloch biography of Thomas Cromwell. It's a really great book, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, biographies from that period are just better because people had the decency to die at the end of their careers, whereas now, you know, they go on and on. But yeah, I'm really enjoying that. What are you uh, looking forward to?
1: Well, I mean, I'm actually off to ride this weekend for the Peas Marsh, uh, Chamber Music Festival, Ooh. so um, I'm really looking forward to hearing some Stravinsky and Mendelssohn. George, how about you? Well,
3: I think Robert mentioned this previously. That he was going to see Dear England, which is the new James Graham play at the National Theatre, which is all about Gareth Southgate. So it's a brilliant play, probably slightly overlong, I would say, a little bit clunky in places, <laughs> but nevertheless, Joseph finds is brilliant at Southgate, and it's basically a story about how Southgate reinvents the England team, and the whole culture around the England team, and of course that's a broader allegory for reinventing the nation as a whole, and becoming a slightly nicer place, which is concerned about free school meals, and racial harmony, and so forth, so it's, look, it's a, it's a really fun play, it's like all James Graham plays, it's got a serious point, but It's also a bit of a hoot as well.
1: Sounds great. Well, that's all we've got time for for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. My thanks to Stephen Bush and George Parker. If you like the podcast, please do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. It really does help spread the word. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Anna Dedder and Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragosa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering is by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's Global Head of Audio. We'll meet again here, same time, same place, next week.